I'm interested in a lot of things, uh, not just helicopters. I can usually find a helicopter angle <laughs> for anything I'm interested in writing about. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. This is episode 95 of the Rotary Wing Show. Welcome back. It is great to hang out with you again. We get a chance in the show to spend time with some of the people that make up the, the colour and the variety of the helicopter industry that we are part of. And today we are chatting with Alan Head, Editorial Director at Vertical Magazine. Alan has been a writer and then editor at Vertical since 2009. She holds commercial licences in the US, Australia and Canada has worked as a helicopter instructor. Alan is very generous with her time and takes us behind the scenes of her work at the magazine and some of the amazing opportunities that she's been able to work hard and develop through the writing and editorial role there. We talk about what it's like to prepare to fly new and different helicopter types, some of the places her work has taken her, tips for helicopter companies on PR or public relations, and how to possibly follow in her footsteps if you are a budding aviation writer yourself. I came away from the interview thinking Alan has a pretty cool job, so see what you think by the end of it too. A long-term goal for Alan was to have the chance to, to fly the Command KMAX, and we kick off our conversation talking about that experience. Alan, welcome to the Rotary Wing Show. I thought we might start off and chat about the the time you got to fly a, a K-Max because that's kind of first when you hopped on my radar in a big way because often you see journalists write about things and you don't sort of know about their background. But for that, that really stuck out for me. It really gave you some, some sort of chops and credibility because it's not everyone who gets the opportunity to jump in and take a, a K-Man for a, a solo lap. So do you want to tell us how that sort of came about? Sure, I'd be happy to. So that was back in December 2014. So I will qualify this by saying I'm not a recent KMAX pilot. I've been meaning to get back for a recurrent course, but uh, COVID has obviously put a damper on that. But yeah, so the KMAX um, has just always fascinated me. I think the first time I saw one was on a fire hella base in Arizona. Uh, back around 2005, I believe. So it was fairly early in my flight training. And my dad is a wildland firefighter with the Forest Service. And I had gone to this helibase to drop off a birthday cake for him. And I remember driving up and seeing this aircraft come in. And I wasn't even sure if it was a helicopter. It was just so weird looking. <laughs> um, but of course, it was a helicopter. It was a KMAX. And that was like my first introduction to the KMAX. And of course, I went up and spoke to the pilot and learned all about it. It just got in my head right there. I want to fly that thing. Were so, you a helicopter pilot at that stage? Or was this like very um, early on? So it was early in my training. So I believe I had just gotten my private certificate. And I think I was working on my instrument training. So, you know, I was definitely familiar with helicopters by that point and obsessed with helicopters. But 
I really had no idea that this thing called a K-Max existed until I saw it coming into this hella base. So, so that was where my love affair with the K-Max started. So, Absolutely. And, and was it just through the, and we'll talk about Vertical Magazine and your writing shortly, but was that the, the intro then to, to get a chance to fly? So the, I, I had to wait a long time to get to fly a K-Max, which most K-Max pilots do. So uh, as far as I can tell, there's basically two routes to becoming a K-Max pilot. So the first traditional route is to become a very accomplished utility pilot, which means paying your dues, living in terrible places, you know, developing thousands of hours of long line time, or you can shortcut it the way I did. (laughs) I I was uh, working for Vertical Magazine. I started uh, working as an editor for Vertical Magazine, I believe in 2009. And uh, sometime shortly after that, I did a story at the Command Factory uh, where I learned that no woman had ever flown a K-Max before. And so that really just, you know, uh, cemented it that I had to had to fly the K-Max. And basically, I just pestered them for a few years uh, to, to let me uh, write a story about it. Uh, and then finally, in 2014, they were getting ready to put the K-Max back into production. And I guess they decided they could use some positive publicity. Uh, so I was able to tag along on a transition course for uh, a, new, a new K-Max pilot from Rotex in Switzerland. And was able to go through the full transition course, just like uh, any other pilot would. Yeah, got to got to fly the K-Max. And what was involved in the transition course? So where, where did you go to do it? So it was at uh, Command's factory in uh, Bloomfield, Connecticut. And it was uh, December, so it was really cold. <laughs> so, but that was, that was the only complaint I had. And it was a fabulous course. It's a two-week course. And so for anyone who's not familiar with the K-Max, uh, it only has a single seat, which means that your first flight in a K-Max is going to be a solo flight, which, you know, it's kind of like being a test pilot in a way. It's, uh, it's a little intimidating, very challenging, very exciting. And the way they prepare you for this is with about six hours of dual instruction in the Husky, which is the predecessor to the K-Max. So they have an old HH-43 which, uh, you know, kind of shakes like a washing machine. <laughs> and you get six hours of dual instruction in this to get used to the intermeshing rotor system. And, uh, yeah, then you strap into the K-Max and they, uh, they basically wish you luck and go stand behind a wall in case anything <laughs> goes wrong. <laughs> and away you go. And then it's uh, another about six hours of, uh, of flight in the K-Max uh, to complete the transition course. And the Husky itself, like it's... A pretty unique aircraft, even itself doing the six hours and that. So it's it's essentially like a side by side configuration with the, the same intermeshing rotors. Uh, correct, and uh, it's it's got to be one of the ugliest helicopters ever designed. <laughs> I mean, it looks like a bread box with this you know big crazy intermeshing rotor system on top, and and like I said, it shakes like a washing machine. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> it's it's not uh, an ergonomic helicopter to fly, but it does give you, you know, really good experience with the principles of this intermeshing rotor system. So that by the time you jump in the K-Max, it's it's really not that surprising or, or intimidating to fly. Is the checks in the cockpit layout, you know, I guess that'd be the whole point, like an R22 and R44, they're very similar. Is that, how similar is the, is the Husky to the K-Max? 
Um, cockpit wise, um, I, I mean, I wouldn't say that they're, they're exactly similar, but you know, they both follow kind of basic helicopter cockpit layout principles. Uh, the K-Max obviously being a single seat is like much narrower. So it's a, it's a different experience, but I mean, the fundamental design, it's, it's a helicopter and it's, there's nothing too, too surprising about it. Well, given that, and given that it's now, you know, quite a few years ago and it was only a few hours, but what were your big impressions like, how does it fly compared to a, a conventional helicopter? Like, in terms of your control, those bits of pieces. Like, what if if you took someone and threw them in? What were the things they would notice, uh, you know, in the hover or forward flight? So, honestly, there are a lot of differences uh, in terms of, like, the quirkiness of this rotor system. You really do get used to them in the Husky so that by the time you get into the K-Max, you know, the only thing you can think about is, oh, this doesn't shake as much as the Husky. This, is the <laughs> this Husky must be really bad. It's, you've mentioned that like four times. <laughs> I, I, I did. Like the only YouTube video I've ever done was uh, just like a video of it kind of shaking go with the cockpit footage and uh, set that to a song that everyone complains about. I set it to the song uh, shaking, but it's it's the whole point. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's fun though. So yeah, so some of the quirks of the rotor system. So you have these, you know, intermeshing rotors, which, you know, ideally do not hit each other, <laughs> but one of the ways, uh, you know, they avoid the rotors making contact in flight is that when you're making a, a side cyclic input, so, you know, going to the left or the right, only one of the rotor discs will tilt. So if you're going to the to the right, if you command a movement to the right, the right rotor system will tilt. And if you command a motion to the left, then only the left rotor system is going to tilt. Whereas if you make a movement fore or aft, both of the rotor systems are going to tilt fore or aft. And so the consequence of this is that you have twice the control authority fore and aft that you do to side to side, which is a little weird <laughs> to get used yeah. to. And, uh, you know, you're going to over control it in a hover until, you know, your brain kind of picks up this quirkiness and you just automatically compensate for it from there. So that's that's one of the quirky things, uh, you know, when you're you're picking up, uh, you know, because the, the torque of this these intermeshing rotor systems are are different from what you'd find in a conventional helicopter, then you're going to have to, uh, you know, input some forward cyclic or aft cyclic. You'll have a pitching moment, uh, you know, when power is increased, pitch up, uh, nose will pitch down when power is reduced. So those are just little quirks that, you know, again, it's it's nothing that you can't get used to, but having, you know, the extra time in the Husky to get used to those things definitely helps. How tall are you? Because what we're going to get to is the size of, of this machine. But uh, Alain, yeah, you, you struck me. Yeah, so how, how tall are you? So I'm about five foot nine. Okay. Whatever yeah. that is in oh. <laughs> That's right. That's five foot nine works. Because again, I've never seen one in, in you know in the flesh or here in Australia. But the thing that gets me when I see a photo and then I see a photo of someone standing next to it is just the size of the thing. So it must look pretty big next to you. Yeah, it's uh, it really is surprising that way. Um, you know, I don't know if maybe it's just because. It's such a weird looking helicopter and we don't have like a lot to compare it to mentally. Like when you see it in photos, it maybe just seems smaller than it is. But uh, when you're up standing next to it, it's, it's definitely a sizable aircraft. Yeah, because it's doing you know, vertical work most of the time and it is that narrow base. So when you're seeing it in that seat, 
yeah, how like how far do you actually have to lean to be able to see down below you? It strikes me as like most aircraft, you sort of really got to stick your head out, but it looks like a perfect long lining machine just for that that um, that arrangement. Yeah, and that, you know that's absolutely what it was designed for, and basically the only thing it does is you know external load operations, and so you know it's definitely designed to be easy to uh, do vertical reference operations. You don't have to lean very far out to you know be able to see underneath you. Of course, you know the farther you lean out, the better view you're going to have of the load and the surrounding environment, anyways. So, but you still, it, it doesn't take the take the lean out of vertical reference ops, but it's uh, it's definitely. Uh, makes it a little easier. The six hours that you did, what was the the sort of program for that? Was it initially you just go and do some hovering and come back, or you cut a circuit, or you go out to a training area and come back? What, what did you do for your six hours? Yeah, so there's a, a syllabus that you go through, and you know a couple of flights are just familiarization flights to you know go up, get uh, get a feel for it, do some hover work, uh, you know forward flight turns, banks, so forth. Then you do some auto rotations, get comfortable with that. And then uh, one flight is devoted to like a maintenance test flight, because most of the people working on the KMAX, uh, they're out in remote areas. And, and as a KMAX pilot, you really need to be a competent maintenance test pilot to, you know, be able to, to keep this thing operating as it should. So that was one whole, whole lesson. And then um, after that, a lot of it's just uh, practicing with vertical reference. And so when I did this course six years ago, uh, I had very limited vertical reference experience. I think I had about like three hours in a jet ranger. So I, I was not winning any awards with my <laughs> vertical reference course. But, but it really, uh, you know, is, I, I think, speaks to how good of a vertical reference platform this is that, you know, I was still able to, to manage it, you know, in control. Uh, you know, I never lost control of the load or anything. And, you know, even flying like a 2,000 pound load around uh, with the KMAX, I mean, it was not significantly harder for me than it was flying that tire around with a jet ranger. So, so that was impressive in itself. Now you just said auto rotation. So I'm imagining a someone jumping in a, in a new machine solo and and taking it up and, and practicing auto rotations. So, talk me through that. Was it just upper air and then recovering, say, by a thousand feet, or were you doing auto rotations solo on this thing for the first time down towards a runway? Um, yeah, no, down towards the runway. Uh, so, uh, you know, it was power recoveries, not doing any full downs <laughs> in the game max on your, on your first flight. Um, and I definitely had a, had a moment of pause, uh, you know, before that, that first auto rotation. It's like, uh, am I really about to do this? Uh, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, for the first takeoff, it was, uh, it was a little intimidating. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> but... But, uh, you know, after that first one, uh, it, it really wasn't too bad. Um, so, you know, it's, it's got a pretty high inertia rotor system, so you don't get an abrupt decay. It's not like doing an auto in an R22. The only thing that's, you know, really surprising about it, I think, is that you really don't want to lower the collective too quickly. And, and this was something like I was warned about as well. It's like, you know, wait, wait to lower the collective, wait to lower the collective, don't slam the collective down. And of course, you know, being used to, say, uh, autoing in an R-22 or other aircraft, I, I kind of put that collective down pretty briskly. And of course, the nose will, you know, pitch down and, oh, uh. <laughs> so that, that, was, that was a little nerve wracking. But then uh, once you got the feel for it, it's, uh, it's pretty docile. Oh, good job. That's that's an awesome to be able to go through that process and do it. So, and, and look, that's when it really stood out to me that, uh, yeah, as I said, it gave me that impression you had uh, a, a bit of credibility there when you were going and doing things like that. So, well, I, 
I feel very fortunate to have had that opportunity. I mean, uh, you know, it's such such a neat aircraft, and uh, to be able to go through an experience like that, and you know, fly an aircraft that you wanted to fly for so long, and really have the opportunity to to do it right and go through the full transition course and learn about the aircraft in depth. That was special, and I'm very grateful to command for the the chance to do that. If we step right back, so where did you do your initial training? I did my initial training at Quantum Helicopters, which is a flight school in Chandler, Arizona, so in the Phoenix area. And uh, I did it in R-22s. So I don't know if my geography in America, you know, it's pretty pretty limited, but Arizona, I'm guessing the training area then was sort of like desert type areas. What's the What was the training? It was. So Arizona, you know, actually a pretty diverse state. We've got nice mountains and pine forests, but uh, Phoenix itself is all desert, very hot. Very, very hot. So, uh, during the summer, I mean, the temperatures get up to like 120 degrees Fahrenheit. So, yeah, it's a fun place to do flight training. <laughs> but you, you have good weather, sunny weather for most of the year. And so that's why there is quite a bit of flight training in that area. And how did it tie in with the riding? What came first, the, the flying or the, the riding for you in terms of getting towards uh, working there at Vertical? Uh, it was definitely the writing. And, you know, I have to say that when I was growing up, I sort of had it in the back of my head, like, you know, getting my pilot license would be a cool thing to do someday. But I never really considered it seriously. And I certainly didn't consider it as a career option. And I don't really know why. But I got into writing. And I was, worked as a newspaper reporter first. And then I got into freelance writing. And I worked as a travel writer. My first helicopter flight was on a travel riding assignment to British Columbia, where I got to go to this pretty fabulous uh, fly-in fishing lodge and got to go helicopter fly fishing, which they basically just flew you out in the helicopter to a beautiful remote river and spent the day fishing, and then they fly you back. That was the first time I'd ever been in a helicopter, and it just blew my mind. You know, immediately started talking to the pilot and asking him all kinds of questions about how things worked and, well, how long does it take you to get your license? And he said, oh, three to four months, which also blew my mind because I was thinking it was this, you know, some kind of four-year professional program to become a pilot. And, and I was living in Phoenix at the time. So basically, I, I went home and I looked up flight schools, found Quantum, you know, about six miles down the road and uh, signed up for lessons. And that was it. Yeah, writing's a bit of a skill too. Like I, I know I struggle when I have to put the blog posts together for these episodes. And when I was at the flight school, uh, you know, in a couple of years, I think I managed to, and I was the only pilot who ever got a blog post written. <laughs> Even I struggled to, to get a, you know, maybe seven sort of written in, in a couple of years. So it's it's definitely a skill where it takes some practice to get, get doing. When you're sitting there writing a, an article, who's the, do you have like a, person in the audience in mind when you sit down and write that that article for vertical i guess you know i guess my audience has you know my understanding of my audience has kind of evolved over the years um but it's always been like my peers so i i mean when i'm writing for and you know the vertical audience i know they're going to be knowledgeable about helicopters and i know they're going to be harsh critics if i get anything wrong <laughs> so you know i think uh Accuracy uh, is definitely something I always have in mind for for that technical audience. And then, you know, I, I want to write something that's going to be fun to read. That's you know, obviously a priority as well. So uh, these days, the the first person I read stories to a lot is my boyfriend. He's a very harsh critic. In fact, the way I met him was he actually wrote into the magazine to complain about an article. <laughs> <I wrote. laughs> so, uh, 
um, but he definitely keeps me honest. <laughs> it's a bit like that. It's that industry thing where you put something out and yeah, you're going to know pretty quickly if, uh, if you've done the wrong thing or someone's got a different opinion. Absolutely. <laughs> So, which, you know, again, is, is it's not something I, I mind. I mean, you know, the great thing about writing for an audience that knows what you're talking about is that you can get into some of those really interesting technical details that you never would be able to for, you know, a general audience. You know, for example, like writing about the KMAX, like I'm not going to explain how the rotor system works for, you know, just like a general audience that doesn't know anything about helicopters. So that's been a fun thing, writing for vertical is, is when you have that knowledgeable audience, you can go to a deeper level and that's fun, you know, as a writer, as a reporter and as a pilot as well. Can you take us behind the, the veil then at, at vertical? Like how, how does it sort of run? Do you have a, you know, a whiteboard up with sticky notes of, of topic ideas that you're sort of working towards like a, you know, a schedule a couple of months out? How do you structure your, your average week there? doing the work for vertical well it's definitely fluid and it's interesting especially over the past year because now everyone's remote so when i started working for vertical i actually spent two years living in canada which is where the company is based i'm from new mexico myself so i was i've never been a cold weather person (laughs) so uh, i I lasted about two winters up there before um, my bosses mike and linda reno let me work remotely So I've been remote for a while, but now with COVID, uh, everyone has been remote basically since what, March or April or so. So we, you know, coordinate a lot of stuff online. And I would say uh, the stories, I mean, all of our writers, contributors are mostly freelance. A lot of them, again, have a lot of industry experience and they're kind of located all over the world. So they'll suggest story ideas to us. Sometimes we'll have ideas for stories that we'll assign to them. And then sometimes, you know, our readers or social media followers will suggest stories and we'll agree, yeah, that sounds like a great idea and, you know, send people out to to go do that story. So stories are coming from all kinds of different places and on pretty fluid timescales. You know, we have a general idea of what we're going to be doing a few months out, but that always changes, as you know, with aviation, helicopters are breaking down or they get busy on, you know, other jobs. And so we're not always able to go out there immediately as planned. Things are fluid, but we're definitely always working, you know, a few months in advance. Photography is a big thing for us. That's been especially challenging this year with COVID. Uh, It's been more difficult to get people out into the field and out on shoots. But we do try to have, you know, great photography to go with our stories. And then these days, Vertical um, is, Vertical's editor-in-chief is Oliver Johnson. And he's actually based in the UK. He's the one responsible for pulling the magazine together and then making sure it all kind of goes out on time. Yeah, I can imagine it's a bit of a process to, to get that happen. Do you get involved in the layout or do you just submit the, you know, edit the articles and, and submit the, the articles? Um, I do. So uh, I would say Oliver and then our publisher, Mike Reno, they're primarily working with our designers on the layout. If I'm editing a, a, an issue of the magazine myself, then I'll be more closely involved in the layout. Basically, we have super talented designers and they all kind of come up with a a first stab at the layouts. And then, uh, you know, we'll shuffle photos around in such a way that really best illustrates the story or highlights really cool photos. And so it's a collaborative process and that's a lot of fun. 
And on social media, though, if people are responding on Facebook and messaging your page, does that go to you or is that someone looking after the social media side? Yeah, so I would say most of the time it does go to me. Uh, we share duties on social media. All of us editors have some involvement, but I've always been very closely involved with social media. So I'd say nine times out of 10, if you're getting a response on social media, it's probably me. Cool. Ah, good to know. <laughs> Is there a couple of stories that have stood out over the time that you wanted to sort of draw attention to and maybe just give a, a different angle to, to what you're able to cover in, in the written story? Well, obviously the K-Max story was really cool. That's, that's probably still my favorite story just because, you know, the experience was so unique. But I've been really fortunate in my position. I've been able to fly a lot of cool aircraft. So I think I'm, I've flown like over 30 types now and some of them uh, have just been a half hour on the controls here or there. Uh, but I've also been able to do stories similar to like my KMAX story where I've actually gone through a full training program and got to fly operationally. I got to do that with Columbia helicopters kind of fairly early in my time with Vertical where I did the full co-pilot training program uh, for their Model 234 Chinook. And then I got to go out and fly as a co-pilot on a, a power line construction job in Nebraska. So that was a pretty neat experience as well to, you know, really be able to to understand a helicopter like the Chinook and, and get trained on it and then go out and, and see what it's actually like to fly that on a job. That was definitely fun. Uh, but another thing I love about my job is that helicopters are such a great entry point into so many different subjects. So I'm interested in a lot of things, uh, not just helicopters. I can usually find a helicopter angle for anything I'm interested in writing about. So, you know, obviously uh, the military helicopters are involved in conflicts. I've been able to go over to Afghanistan a couple of times. I was in Mali uh, covering peacekeeping operations there. Uh, disaster relief. I covered the operations after the, the earthquake in Haiti in 2010. So that was a, a pretty special experience. And then just being able to go to places like as diverse as Nepal and Papua New Guinea and um, you know South Africa. We did a fantastic story a couple of years ago with the South African National Parks Air Wing in Kruger National Park, where we got to fly with them and see the work they do, both you know anti-poaching and also some of the conservation work like elephant darting. And so being able to ride along for missions like that and, and to see such an amazing part of the world from such a unique perspective. That was definitely special and, and one of my favorite stories. Wow. Like I got a question there later about how do people sort of follow in your footsteps, but you just, you just absolutely sold the, the role and <laughs> <the> job then <laughs> listing those things off. Well, and the thing is, you know, I, I started out uh, as a pilot and a flight instructor. I worked as a flight instructor at Quantum as well. And, you know, I, I love flying and I definitely miss flying full time, but you know, getting those those experiences, uh, you know, when I think about some of the things I've been able to do, that's that's what makes up for not getting to fly full time. <laughs> so, yeah, and that's why I'm still doing what I'm doing. Look, there's the old joke of you know someone's got hundreds of hours of doing the same left hand circuit on a on a seating type thing, but to be able to yeah, have that range of being able to sort of you know jump in a you know, obviously not current type thing, but having the experience of jumping a Chinook and seeing those different things, it's a uh, wealth of experience like so when you sit down and write an article now you've got a, a pretty good background as you said you're sort of writing to people who who know a little bit about the industry but to be able to pull those threads together it's uh yeah i'm just trying to think of you know cracking up over an internet news website and seeing something happening in mail or those places and having that background that you've got 
it, uh, yeah, it just must be pretty interesting color and, and depth to, to what happens in world news. Um, I, I think so. And, you know, one thing, uh, I was reflecting on this earlier, I guess now that I'm getting old and I've actually been doing this for a while, I've been able to, uh, you know, kind of meet up with people at different stages in their careers in different parts of the world. And Molly was a really cool example of that because the task force commander there, Colonel Chris McKenna, I'd actually met him uh, in Afghanistan back in 2010 when I had embedded with the Royal Canadian Air Force. So he'd been commanding Canada's Chinooks in Afghanistan. And so, you know, I'd really gotten to see the whole evolution of like Canada's tactical helicopter capability from Afghanistan to Mali and, uh, you know, to be able to to meet up with someone I'd last seen in Afghanistan, like in Mali, uh, that, that was kind of a neat experience as well, having that continuity. Yes, yeah, nice. You made a note in one of the emails that because you've had to jump in these different aircraft with, you know, reasonably low experience on, on different types, because the only other person I know who's flown at many years was Sean Coyle as a test pilot, and he had like 35 types, so that's his, you know, he was quite proud of that. So, yeah, you had some tips, or you, had, you said you had some sort of thoughts about transitioning from one aircraft to the next and, and your process of doing it. Do you want to share, yeah, what, what you're thinking there? Sure, sure, I'd be happy to. So I, w- I will say one thing I've gotten really good at is being not good at flying. <laughs> so, you know, when you're, when you're flying full-time, like you develop this proficiency that just feels really good and, you know, you get comfortable in aircraft and, and it becomes part of your identity. And it, it just feels great to be able to be one with an aircraft and control it and kind of know what to expect and to have it respond like to, to what you're thinking. And when you're not flying much and you don't, you know, get, uh, get that practice, especially in one specific aircraft, then you start to realize that, oh, wait, no, this is, this is not so much part of my identity. Flying is actually a perishable skill. And there's no way to be really awesome at flying unless you're doing it all the time. So when I first started, you know, jumping between aircraft, this was just massively bruising to my ego. (laughs) And I would just gnash my teeth and, and, you know, just really feel bad about the fact that I like wasn't flying as good as I, I was, I wanted to fly because, you know, we're all pilots. We, we want to fly well. And finally, I just got over it. <laughs> and I, you know, I had to you know realize that, that flying is a perishable skill and, you know, you're just, you're just not going to be good at it if you're not doing it all the time. And once you kind of reach that level, then you can start to, I think, view your own performance as well as the aircraft like a lot more objectively. So instead of like being you know, preoccupied with how am I doing, you start like really listening to the aircraft and, and seeing like, well, how does it respond and, and what is it doing now? And what, what does that tell me about the way the aircraft is designed or, or you know, how, it's, how it operates? Uh, so uh, I've, I've gotten used, you know, I have to go back to basics every time I jump into a new aircraft. Again, it's just back to those basics you learn in flight school. Like, uh, you know, for example, slow pickups. Really feel what the aircraft is doing. Like, where is the center of gravity? How is it responding? And, uh, you know, do that every time instead of getting into the habit where you're comfortable with one aircraft and you know how it's going to, you know, basically pick up and there's no surprises. I think that's a really good habit to fall back into is, is really feeling what the aircraft is doing each time. So that's, that's been a, a new way of uh, approaching aircraft for me that uh, I think on balance has made me a better pilot. And I think it's interesting this past year, I actually haven't flown since February because I'm in Belize now and I don't really have any opportunities to fly. 
but I think a lot of other pilots due to COVID are in the same boat. So, uh, you know, I think this is the first year that so many pilots in the industry have been forced out of the cockpit for a really long period of time. And so I would just, you know, encourage everyone when they get back into the aircraft <laughs> to set their ego aside. Remember that flying is a perishable skill. Just, you know, do whatever they need to do to, to get back into the swing of things safely. There was, I guess, two, two ways I was going to go with that there as well is my understanding of the test pilot course is they throw them in a bunch of different aircraft types to try and desensitize them and get them used to this is just a collection of systems that's been put together in a, in a different way. And coming from initial military background, you fly one type for, for years and years of time to then moving into civil street where you know flying a couple of different types. Is it have you got to the point where you can look at a new helicopter and, and read the flight manual? And it does feel like that. It's just a, a bunch of different systems put together in a different way. Like when you open up a new flight manual, do you particularly go to, to certain sections to have a look? Yeah, absolutely. And so that's, you know, one thing I love to do with my stories, even if I'm only going to be jumping into an aircraft for like, you know, an hour or so. I always ask for the flight manual in advance so that I can read it in advance and study up and and you start to understand, like, you know, what is what are the principles on which this helicopter is designed and, and how do those compare to, you know, similar aircraft and different aircraft. So I always try to start with a flight manual and then, you know, really kind of get an idea of, like, what are those systems? And, and yeah, that's absolutely how I approach aircraft these days is as a collection of systems instead of thinking them as, you know, this magical, mystical living sort of thing that you have to figure out in the cockpit. <laughs> so. And have you, there may be a lot of that too, but yeah, it's always a bit of figuring out each time. But uh, when you visited like the factories, and you know, I'm guessing you've had access to the engineers or the designers. Can you remember anything? Because that's the amazing thing. Like sometimes they'll just drop something that is just in pure normal conversation for them. But because of the way our flight manuals are organised in terms of what actually goes in them, can you remember a couple of instances where you've talked to like an engineer or designer, and they've given you that background around? around why something is designed that way that was a surprise or that doesn't get out there? You know, that's a great question. And I'm sure I could come up with some specific examples. <laughs> like I'm sure I'll wake up tonight thinking, oh, yeah. <laughs> but one thing that really made an impression on me was the, the first Bell Factory course I did. So I uh, went through the 206 initial transition course. Right after I'd been working as a flight instructor, so I had, uh, you know, maybe a, a thousand something hours at that point. And I was actually a, a recipient of a Whirly Girl scholarship, so I got to do the, the factory transition course. And that was such a great experience, you know, having access to those people who had the really deep level of knowledge about the aircraft systems and the backgrounds. I, I remember being, you know, just really impressed with like, oh, this is a really great way to learn an aircraft. And really understand those systems and some of the rationale behind the systems. You know, being able to do that uh, kind of at an early stage in my career, I think that was uh, great and eye-opening. And certainly I'm, I'm a big fan of factory training at that level, if anyone has the opportunity to do it. Yeah, it's something I've, I've never done just because of a lot of, uh, you know, I guess geography and then being able to, to travel to factories to, to do that training and, and cost. But yeah, it, it's something that does frustrate me because, you get a helicopter and you get given the flight manual and for, you know, I'll say there's different legal reasons, but you would love to have a, a companion guide that is separate to the flight manual that captures all these uh, backgrounds of, you know, why something's designed this way or 
all the things that you can't fit in a flight manual just because that information's out there. But if you fly and you type, often all you get is a flight manual and that's it. Absolutely. I think that's a real shortcoming of the industry and so many different aspects of it, uh, you know, not just with respect to particular aircraft, but also particular missions and things like mountain flying. There's so many people in the industry who are really very knowledgeable about these aircraft or these missions, and they have this great specialized body of practical experience that they've built up over years and years. And, you know, I've been fortunate because uh, a lot of my stories are, you know, interviewing people like this. I get to see like kind of that full range and, and benefit from a lot of their knowledge. But I don't think that the industry as a whole has done a very good job of sharing that. That's something I think that we could definitely do a better job of uh, throughout the industry. Awesome. Well, that's where your articles <laughs> come into it a little bit. To I, slice. So, is it responsibility on you as well to capture those little tips for us? Well, yeah, I do my best. And, uh, you know, certainly, uh, you know, I, I, I would hope that that's contributing to the to the body of knowledge that's available in the industry. But a lot of times what my stories do is encourage people, hey, this was an amazing training experience. You need to go do this yourself. And so that's like what I try to, to convey, like simulator training or inadvertent IMC training, for example. It's like, I can write about this and I can tell you it's awesome, but a lot of things you can only learn by doing. From your vantage point, I guess, seeing the different industries at the moment, I won't spend too much time on COVID because it's obviously a, you know, it's a fairly time-related type thing. But how have you seen the, the different markets there? Um, you know, I'm assuming tourism is probably the big one that we've seen here in Australia and take a, a hit. But how are you seeing companies and, and regions respond to that at the moment? I think there's you know, been a lot of variation. Obviously, tourism has been very hard hit. Certainly, like in the U.S., we've seen some of the big tourism operators cease operations or, or just really struggle. Um, it's it's been uneven. Uh, you know, I think helicopters are involved in enough, you know, really essential work that a lot of those services have continued to function. But at Vertical, you know, we did a, a survey recently, uh, you know, asking people how COVID had affected their operations. And almost like 80% uh, of the operators that we surveyed had seen a really significant impact from COVID. So, so it's been difficult for everyone, I think. Helicopters, I think, have maybe fared a little bit better than you know, fixed-wing uh, counterparts just because of the essential nature of so many helicopter missions, but it's been tough for a lot of people, for sure. All right, say we were able to steal you away from vertical and drop you into a uh, flight school or a, a scenic uh, helicopter company or even a utility helicopter company. How would you use what you now know to basically market them or, or do PR for that company? Can you give some tips on, on what people should be doing or how you'd go about doing that for a company? Oh, that's a that's a great question as well. So uh, as I mentioned, I've been really involved with vertical social media from the beginning. And I spend a lot of time on vertical social media. I don't do much personally on social media because I get enough of it on the vertical <laughs> yeah. side. But I really spend a lot of time online and kind of watching how the helicopter industry markets itself and presents itself. And I think there's been an unfortunate wariness on the part of helicopter operators to really put themselves out there. And I think this is a, a very long-standing thing. They're very shy of publicity. And, and unfortunately, I think one reason why is because a lot of the operators that have been great at publicity have been terrible operators. So, uh, you know, there's, there's some companies out there that have been amazing on social media, 
but they're really terrible companies that have had had accidents or have just been awful for the safety of the industry generally. And I think a lot of reputable operators look at that and they say, oh, well, we need to you know, shy away from that and keep under the radar. I think that's the wrong lesson to draw. I think that we as an industry you know, need to realize that we're not shaping a professional discourse around helicopters, then other people are going to define the nature of that discourse for us. And they are often going to be those operators who aren't uh, flying safely or professionally. So I would encourage any operator to cultivate an online presence, but to do it in a way that is professional and also transparent. So we all know what good operating practices are, most of us anyways. <laughs> and I think you, you, know, you can set an example sharing you know, great photos and videos that do show safe, responsible operating practices, but still get people excited about helicopters. And again, transparency, not, uh, not trying to hide or misrepresent anything, but uh, to just you know, be, be honest and straightforward about the cool things that helicopters can do when they're flown safely. I guess that's one thing too is a lot of companies would restrict what employees can post just because of the, uh, I guess it was the FAA, the CASA, and then it becomes evidence to be used against them. That's the kind of the, the uh, reluctance I've seen from, from companies to, to post anything. But, yeah, uh, and I think, you know, I think there are some forward-thinking companies out there that do realize that their employees are their best advertisers and their best assets. And so ideally, you would have a company that's encouraging your, your pilots to, to share because, you know, you know, and uh, they know that they're operating safely and within the regulations. Obviously, I know that uh, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of hesitancy, even if companies do believe that they're doing everything correctly because you, know, you can never know. But I think it's, uh, you know, a symbol of trust. Um, with your employees. If, if you trust that your op uh, employees are operating correctly, if you, know, you all have this like, really professional ethos and vision you subscribe to, then you should be able to share in a way that uh, you know, keeps everyone happy and, and doesn't get anyone in trouble. <laughs> that's, that's the ideal anyway. Yeah. Well, the thing is everyone's posting them on their own social media, just on the, on the company one. So, I mean, people are posting stuff anyway. It's just a matter of collecting it and, and uh, I guess, putting it through a filter before you put it on the, on the public page and put a, a brand on it. Yeah. And, you know, one, one thing I would recommend to everyone is, like, not think of, you know, social media or PR as something that you foist off on your inexperienced intern or receptionist. See, a lot of companies do this as, like, social media is just an afterthought. Uh, you should really have, uh, you know, your senior personnel involved and engaged in this marketing of your company, because those are the people who best, you know, understand what it is you want to be putting out there. So, for example, with Vertical, I mean, I'm, uh, you know, our senior editor, but I'm very involved in Vertical social media. And I do that because, you know, I have the expertise to like, kind of know when something isn't quite kosher <laughs> and like maybe we shouldn't be sharing this or promoting this and i think that's not something that someone who's new to the industry would necessarily understand or be able to pick up on so that's that's why i've stayed involved in, in vertical social media and you know would really encourage any company that's you know putting content out there to, to keep your senior people involved because that's going to be what's best for your company and, and for for your followers in terms of press releases like I'm imagining whatever the number of helicopter companies are in the world, what percentage of those have ever put a press release out? I know through Vertical, it's pretty 
pretty simple, really. You, you send a press release and it normally gets then published up on the, on the, uh, on the website. Any, any tips for someone who's never done a press release? Are they effective? Is it, a, is it an SEO sort of play these days? How do you go about making the most of, if you do have news, trying to, to share it? I think uh, press releases are a great tool. You have to think about your audience. So obviously with Vertical, we're you know, an industry audience. If you have a product or a service that you're marketing to the helicopter industry, you're definitely the right place to place it. But let's say you're a tour company and you have like a new tour product that you think is cool and you want to advertise. You could send the press release to us. Um, most of our readers you know, aren't in the market for helicopter tours because they're doing them themselves. But you can distribute that to like your local media and uh, travel media in your market. And that's a great way of, of getting information out there in a way that doesn't really cost you anything. Uh, and, and so I'm, I'm a big fan of you know, encouraging companies to, to put out press releases anytime they have something really newsworthy to share. And if you're not uh, proficient or know anything about writing press releases, there's all kinds of freelance writers, especially in this market, who would be happy to help you out. <laughs> so. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, well, let's go, I guess, just in the coverage that you get to see of either, you know, as you said, press releases coming in or uh, story ideas coming up, if we don't take away from, from the articles you're writing at the moment. But what, what are some of the, the new things that are coming up technology-wise that you're sort of seeing? So, you know, how far along are the electric helicopters is there any updates on, on diesel-type helicopters, new technologies or safety regulations that are, are coming out? Uh, I know Robinson's now selling, you know, like engine monitoring kits with the, the new helicopters. Is there a couple of sort of new things like that that you think people be interested in knowing about? Well, um, from a new technology perspective, uh, I've been spending a lot of my time over the past year and a half covering the EVTOL market, so the electric vertical takeoff and landing market. And so... These aircraft, and you know, there's a ton of them in development, various stages of development. They're not helicopters, but instead they're like these totally new class of aircraft that rely on distributed electric propulsion. The idea is like if you have electric motors, you know, you're not constrained on where you stick your rotors in the same way you are with a helicopter that you know requires a, a big combustion engine and like a massive transmission. You can really stick these the electric propellers and motors anywhere on the aircraft. And that's enabled a ton of, you know, really innovative and different designs. So the helicopter industry I've noticed has been very contemptuous of this whole eVTOL market. <laughs> and I think, a, you know, a fair bit of skepticism is warranted because they're promising huge things. And have Look at the whole to... Uber, Uber Air Taxi thing that's, uh, you know, they're using Melbourne and Australia as a launch customer. But yeah, some of the exactly. feedback there is that there's no regulation. There's no thought. It's almost just like a, a marketing ploy to, to get um, newspaper space at the moment. So there's, yeah, there's a huge amount of hype and that has made the conventional aviation industry, you know, very skeptical of this. But despite all the hype, there's actually a lot of really innovative, exciting technology development that's underpinning all of this. And you see this now with, uh, you know, certain aircraft like Joby Aviation's aircraft and Beta Technologies uh, electric aircraft that are actually flying and in various stages of certification. And the really exciting thing about these aircraft is that for certain missions, which, you know, involve transporting people or things, so not necessarily hovering, EVTOLs are not great at like hovering compared to helicopters. 
but moving, you know, things and people, uh, you know, shorter distances under 100 miles or so, which a lot of helicopter missions are about, tourism or charter, you're going to see like dramatically reduced operating costs because electric systems are just so much simpler than, you know, these very complex uh, transmission systems and combustion engines. So I think that that's on the horizon and that's going to have a real impact on the certain sectors of the commercial helicopter industry. And I think a lot of commercial helicopter operators, you know, would be well positioned to adopt some of the, these new eVTOL aircraft for those types of missions like tourism and charter and corporate. Uh, and, and you'd see operating costs that are like half of, half of comparable helicopters. So that's a, a really interesting area. Concurrent with that, there's developing a lot of interesting autonomy technology. Most of these aircraft in development, they're being flown unmanned as well as piloted. And that autonomy, I think, is going to uh, you know, maybe bleed over into uh, in conventional aviation as well, as well as some st exciting stuff like computer vision. So there's a Swiss company called Bedalian that's developing this computer vision technology that you know, eventually they would like to adapt this uh, you know, to an artificial intelligence autopilot that could fly the aircraft itself. But in the meantime, you have this computer vision technology that's much better at, for example, identifying drones, small drones, than human pilots are. And so they're working to stick this type of technology into today's helicopters, and that would give you awareness of small drones or other hazards that might be uh, in your airspace without uh, having to rely on transponders and stuff like that. Yeah, definitely. If you look at... Uh, I, I guess pace te technology, it's it's going that way, and yeah, I've been thinking about other skills I need to pick up to you know sort of still be relevant and sort of ten years down the track. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that for the the brand new tour pilot who's out at the moment? How how do we as helicopter pilots kind of think ahead strategically in in our training and our, our skills we pick up to try and adapt for that world where there's a lot more automation? Well, that's interesting as well, because, you know, it's an explicit goal of this EV tall urban air mobility industry to like do away with pilots altogether. <laughs> so, you know, eventually, like their ideal aircraft like does not have a human pilot messing around. If you're thinking long term, you know, you might want to realize that for these types of aircraft, this, you know, very specialized and expensive body of knowledge that we've you know, put so much effort into acquiring that's not going to be relevant for, you know, a lot of those missions, especially like at the lower end that can be done with these small eVTOL aircraft. That's where I think developing specialized skills, whether it's vertical reference or search and rescue skills in like larger helicopters. I think larger helicopters and hovering helicopters are going to be around for quite some time to come because that's not technology that's going to be easily replaced by this eVTOL aircraft. So... Uh, certainly a lot of technology, autonomy technology will inform these, these missions like search and rescue, but I think there's still going to be a, a fairly you know, robust market for these more specialized types of pilot operations. Well, um, if someone wants to follow in your footsteps, someone starting off in aviation at the moment or, or journalism or, or doing both as a, a very early steps, you just mentioned you know, some of the things you've been able to do and the places you've been able to go. So if so, someone's sitting down with you and you bump into them at a convention or something, they say, hey, I want your job. What would you suggest they start off? What, what are the first steps? 
So, uh, you know, as I mentioned, I came into this from a kind of surprising path. I was a writer initially who never had any idea that I would get so obsessed with helicopters, but so I did. (laughs) I'm going to assume that most people listening to this podcast are already obsessed with helicopters. Absolutely. We'll start start from there. Um, You know, I, I, again, um, I, I think there's so many great stories out there to be told and so many interesting things happening in the industry. And, and I think if you are interested in writing, just you know, identify what are those stories you want to tell. Maybe it's something in your personal experience, or maybe you know someone, maybe you know a pilot who's just really interesting to you or a mission that's really interesting to you. So, you know, identify those stories that you want to tell and then approach someone like, you know, Vertical or one of the other publications and say, hey, I have this idea for a story. I'm really excited about it. And this is why you should be excited about it as well. And then from there, you know, we, uh, if it's a good fit, we'll assign the story. And, uh, you know, you don't have to be a great writer to, to get started in aviation journalism. We would I would say most of the time rather have someone who's really knowledgeable and passionate about aviation than someone who's like a good writer, but, you know, lacks that that knowledge or interest in aviation. We can help you develop as a writer. It, uh, you just need that, that, that curiosity and passion. You need to believe that there are stories out there that are really interesting that other people would be interested in. And uh, just uh, convince us that you're the best person to tell them. <laughs> and, you know, typically, uh, if, if you're easy, easy to work with and, and passionate and excited about the, the subject as we are, then we'll keep working with you. I guess it doesn't have to be about at the helicopter per se, like the physical thing. It's, it's the people in there and what they're doing as well. That's where stories can come from. Probably more interesting actually reading about someone who's doing something rather than whatever the, the latest new helicopter gadget is. Yeah, and you know, there's only there's a limited number of new helicopters and new gadgets. <laughs> yeah, that's, <it. laughs> that's, that's not going to sustain any magazine. But uh, that that is the thing that's so cool about the helicopter industry is helicopters are doing all different types of missions and and crazy missions too, right? Like things that you would never imagine. Like uh, one of my jobs out of flight school was I I was a cherry dryer, so I flew a a B model Huey around, like drying cherry trees after it rained. I had no idea that that job ever existed. <laughs> yeah, that was one of the early ones that surprised me too. Because again, coming in the military, I've never heard of that. I, I still, I've got a list. I haven't tracked someone down to, to find out more about that. But yeah, like that's just totally random. Yeah, and so I, I mean, I've been in the industry like you know a fair fair while at this point, and I'm still coming across all these jobs that are like, what? You can use a helicopter for that? That's crazy. So you know, there's all these interesting stories, and of course, interesting people because no one like you know really sane becomes a helicopter pilot. <laughs> so there's lots of great stories to tell there. And then again, you know, it's an entry point into all of these other subjects as well. Whatever geopolitical topic of interest like you want to write about, there's a helicopter angle. There, there almost always is. So, Alana, that's that's been awesome. It's just a, I guess a, you know, when you pick up the the magazine now and read the articles online. I just love that fact that you know, the same thing I was talking before when you can see a story and you know some of the people behind it. The same thing for us listening here today that you know, we can sort of, when we see that post on, on Vertical, uh, we can at least sort of attach a, a person uh, behind that and get a little more context. So that's been a lot of fun. Yeah, well, thank you so much. Um, I mean, I love the show and uh, you've, you've had a lot of interesting people on the show and uh, I certainly appreciate the, all of the opportunities I've had uh, in the industry to tell their stories as well.
What's the best play, place for or best way for people to reach out for you? Is it through the vertical Facebook page or uh, email? What's the best way for people to, to get in touch? Well, yeah, now everyone knows that they can reach me through any of the words. <laughs> <laughs> so it's probably me. Um, yeah, um, you know, I'm, I'm not too hard to find. Uh, I have social accounts and like a LinkedIn as well. Or you can reach me by email. My email is Alan, so E-L-A-N at uh, nhmpub.com. So Mike Hotel, Mike Papa Uniform Bravo, like nhmpublishing.com. Uh, and yeah, always happy to, to chat about the industry or if anyone's interested in and learning more about this particular career path, I'd be happy to help. That's fantastic. All right, well, looking forward to seeing your articles come up and uh, chatting sometime in the future. Thanks so much. That was Alain Head, Editorial Director at Vertical Magazine. You don't have to go very far online to find Alain or Vertical if you go looking. There are several photos up on the Rotary Wing Show blog that go along this episode. If you want to see Alain in the K-Max or taking a front seat ride in a, a hind gunship, that's at rotarywingshow.com and look for episode 95. There are links there to some of Alain's social media and website links and properties there on the blog post too. I even managed to track down and embed the video that Alain was talking about for the HH43 Husky. And you can see the, the washing machine vibrations and the, the cyclic stick shake there in, in the video. If you're on the website and while you're there, look back over some of the old episodes and jump in and have a look at some of the comments on them and yeah, be part of the conversation. It's a great way to, to share your feedback. Otherwise, you can hit me up at feedback at Rotary Wing Show or leave a review on iTunes. As I, Again, just some great social proof for other people in the industry if they're deciding whether to subscribe or not. A big thanks for those of you that are financially supporting the logistics and hosting of the show episodes on patreon.com. You can search for Rotary Wing Show there at Patreon. If you're positioned to be able to chip in a few bucks, that is really appreciated. Thank you to the following team that have brought you this episode with their support. Heath, Stephen, Nikolai, Elidal, Benjamin, Jeff, Mike, Bill, Jason, Brent, Michael, AJ, Hal, Mark, Shannon, Kirillin, Eric, Jake, Chris, Gareth, John, Kevin, Tony, Peter, Jason, Michael, and Rendell. Keep safe out there. Stay vigilant and keep learning every chance that you get. It's awesome to be able to share this journey with you. <laughs>